Hey, so today we have a very special guest, John Aldred of DIYPhotography.net and his YouTube channel, which is John Aldred, I believe. Yep. Is that the name of your YouTube channel? Yeah. <laughs> I just subscribed. I've seen a few of these videos <laughs> years ago. Um, John is a writer at DIYPhotography.net um, and covers all sorts of photography news. Um from major things that might overlap with uh, the coverage of a site like Petapixel to what really interests me, which is smaller uh, camera and photography, videography companies, um, and even DIY projects. Um, I don't know John personally yet. I'm looking forward to it, and we're going to let him tell you guys a little bit more about himself, and then we'll get started. So, John, welcome to the Homemade Camera Podcast. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Thanks for being here. So uh, let, let's start with uh, who you are. How did you get into photography and writing and uh, start writing at DIYphotography.net? So, so the two different stories. The, the photography, I, I, when I was a little kid, my, my dad had this Olympus OM-1. Um, and he had like all the fast F1.4 lenses and all the rest of it. And, and I was not allowed anywhere near it. Uh, if I even looked at it too hard, I was in trouble. Uh, <laughs> that sounds familiar. Yeah, yeah. So it, it, it was never something I got into as a kid, although it always really, really interest, interested me. Um, and, and then as I grew up, it, it, it kind of just it, it just became like the normal snapshot thing. You get a disposable or whatever. And, and, and that was it. But then I spent some time in Florida in my early 20s. Um, and I started working with a guy who had a collection of around 140 venomous snakes, uh, mostly cobras, who he he breed them and the babies would go off to like venom research labs from milking for anti-venom and cancer research and that kind of thing. And it was a lot of fun, a lot of fun. But I wanted a way to start documenting all these insane animals that we were working with. And that's basically what got me into photography. Um, I, I had no interest in photographing people at all. I just wanted to photograph all the, the, the all these snakes in the collection, all the crazy snakes and alligators and other wildlife around Florida. And 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 somehow I got into photographing sports cars while I was there as well. Um, <laughs> but then when I moved back to the UK, I um, a lot of the things that I had been photographing all disappeared because there's no well there's like there's one species of venomous snake in the uk and i've still never seen one um Wait, john let me let me stop you right there we're going to get back to photography but um i gotta find out how did you wind up in florida milking venomous snakes that's <laughs> that sounds that sounds pretty good that's well, the most Old Testament beginning. Right. Well, I, I, I wasn't career. actually milking them myself. Mostly, like, I met this guy in a pet shop one day because um, I was staying with a friend. They, she had reptiles and, and we were both in the reptile section and we, and we just got talking and sorry, excuse me. <laughs> and we both just got talking and, and became friends. And then he's like, look, I like the collection's quite big now. I, I need some help cleaning and feeding these things. So a couple of times a week, I'd go over and. And we'd be, you know, I, I, the first time I saw his collection, I just, are we allowed to swear on here? Sure. Because I absolutely, well, I didn't, not literally, but I, I almost shit myself the first time I walked into his snake room. 
because there's like there's cages and cages like just like floor to ceiling on every wall all filled with cobras and rattlesnakes and black mambas and god knows what <laughs> and, <clears throat> and uh but after a couple of weeks like you, you start to recognize the behaviors and how different animals tick um and, and how they're going to respond to what you're going to do so a, a lot of the time it was it was a case of you know like like he's there with the cage he opens it up he gets the tongs in or the hook pulls out the snake i'm there holding the lid of a trash can he puts the snake in the trash can the lid goes down and then we can safely clean the cage put in food put in fresh water um and then we reverse it and put the snake back in the cage um so multiplied by 140 or so um Mm. and uh, yeah it it was a lot of fun because like i said we're working with rattlesnakes black mambas uh cobras like like god knows how many species of each um but yeah it, it was an up i don't i could i don't think i'd have the reaction time to be able to do that kind of thing now but it, it was an absolute blast and and just fell into it completely by accident just a and chance meeting in a pet no shop. i think that fellow was lying in wait for a quick young snake <laughs> <next year. laughs> well, no, he was only like a year older than me so <laughs> Yeah, there's not too many old uh, snake milkers, I assume. <laughs> no. no, but yeah, it, it was it was a lot of fun. A lot so, of fun. So, John, you did you buy your your first camera or or sort of get? Yeah, uh, my my first. I I I right at the start, I was very much all the gear and no idea. Mm-hmm. Um, I got a Nikon N90s, um, which I still have, like 20 years later, and still use occasionally. Well, um i i i have since picked up like a few nikon mats and an f100 and i i generally tend to use those more than the n90s but uh, but yeah i still have my n90s and i still use it occasionally um but yeah so what year was that john this would have been about 2001 yeah were were you a uh, dale labs customer oh that sounds familiar. I might yeah, have been. Yeah, there was a big Florida lab. I only went there once when I was visiting my grandparents, but I used to mail things to them quite a bit. I think a lot of people did who listeners to this podcast, I would assume. Yeah, I, I want to say I, I, the name definitely sounds familiar. I'm pretty sure I bought some bits from them online, mm. um, like through the Nikonians forum or some forum back then. Um, but yeah, it was, uh, yeah, it was a lot of fun, a lot of fun. Okay, so so I took us on a tangent about venomous snakes. <laughs> I couldn't help myself. But, so you go back to Scotland and like well, I, I came back to England first. I came back to England and and like all, all the like like we, obviously we've got wildlife here, but it, it's not like alligators and eastern diamondbacks and you know <laughs> the other crazy stuff. And my cameras didn't like I'd already switched to digital by that point. My cameras didn't even come out of the bag for like a year. Um, and, and and finally, it was I, I got to a point where it's like I have to figure out something to do with these or I just need to sell them and find a new hobby. And um, I, I finally decided to have a go at photographing people. So I, I stalked Joe McNally online for like six months on his website and YouTube videos and anything else I could find. Cause I, I found his book, the hot shoe diaries, and I just absolutely love the images in it, the style of them, but also like 
the sort of psychology behind them because he exp- it, it's an interesting book because he talks about why he made the decisions that he made rather than just saying it was a light here and this aperture and that ISO and that shutter speed. It's it's very interesting book. So so that that really got me into Joe's work and and not necessarily always like his lighting style, but it was sort of inspired by that. And and so yeah, so I I spent like a good solid six months be- like researching his stuff and other portrait stuff before I even pointed my camera at a person. Um, and I ended up I went to a group shoot which. It was at an old Victorian baths in Manchester that had been derelict for like 20 years. Um, and, and somehow a friend of mine had convinced them to let a group of photographers and models in for a day. Um, and we had the complete run of the entire place. You got these like crazy cool tunnels underneath the baths and yeah, insane. But yeah, there was about maybe 15 photographers or so and about a dozen models and four or five hair and makeup artists and and i'm like right beginning of the day i i had two lighting setups in my head that i sort of practiced with my mum and my wife at the time and my sister and and i'm like right i'm just gonna try these and 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 see how they go because i wanted to see what I, I wanted to understand light i wanted to learn how the same setup can look different on different people like different heights different facial structures and all the rest of it um so i basically just stuck with these two lighting setups all day long with like eight different models um and at the end of the day when i when i looked back at my images when i got home and i could see that sort of the evolution of the light with each of the little sessions as i'd sort of tweaked it to try and get the look i was going for it's like it just absolutely fascinated me like and that that was even though I'd been you know sort of holding a camera already for like six or seven years, that was when I really first started to look at it properly and go, wow, this is cool. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense when you actually get your hand in and and start yeah changing yeah it it it's one of those um it's one of those Dunning Kruger things you 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 just don't know how much you don't know until you realize how much you don't know. <laughs> And it's it's the thing where you start to become involved instead of just be a button pusher. That yeah, that's what does it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then, uh, so I I I I got hooked on shooting people. Like when I first picked up a camera, people was the last thing I wanted to shoot. Now I'd rather photograph people than anything. Um, I feel very similarly. I, when I started, I uh, wanted to be Ansel Adams, you know. Right, uh, but not too much of that in new york city and no. <laughs> eventually i you know became uh, way more interested in in shots of people yeah it, it, it's see I, I i was looking at a lot online when i was doing my initial research in shooting portraits and and there's a lot where people just look stiff and bored and uninterested or or or, or sometimes even scared you know I, I don't know whether it was of the photographer or of the camera or of being in sort of like an unfamiliar setting or or, or whatever but it, it, it's i i looked at all this these pictures and i'm and i, I just thought that they, they can't all look that bad <laughs> <laughs> you know because it, it's the the technical side of photography i, I i've always found to be this sounds really pretentious, but I, I've always found it to be quite easy because it, it's all pretty logical. It's all maths and, and 
relatively simple stuff like you know it's not rocket surgery yes um (laughs) so like the technical side of it i had figured and 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 it was that psychological side of it that i've been really sort of trying to push myself with since day one like like both in how i want my subject to present to the camera and the response i might want to elicit out of the people looking at the image um yeah so i think that what you're describing is that there are two really different approaches to photography one of them yeah you're talking about which is a social interaction Um, Mm -hmm. and the other way of approaching it with or without people is more like a painter yeah uh, working on a canvas i mean that can have a social interaction too obviously yeah but i kind of came to photography from painting and all right and it's very and that's a whole other trip and then when i go out and try and shoot people it's it seems like an utterly different art it's just yeah. a completely different thing yeah. so john when you were back in england did you have a photography related job or this was just a hobby at that point uh, when i first moved back and first decided to photograph people it was still mostly just a hobby um i actually got a job at an advertising company doing motion graphics um in adobe after effects for a, a few months and then that company went bust um and it was proving difficult to find something else and i've got people telling me hey you're really good you, you should charge money for these photos and i basically made them put their money where their mouth was Uh, it was that that simple and then then like i picked up those few first initial clients um and they basically became my advertising you know 99 of the work that i picked up in photography when i was doing it full-time was word of mouth it was all past clients telling their friends you really need to go shoot with this guy um which which is a nice buzz yeah and and so i don't know if we should get into uh tinkering yet or or we should go but maybe maybe let's let's get to so how did you go from there being like an advertising advertising photographer with a venomous snake background (laughs) to um like like you've become a real industry journalist um how, how did that shift take place so in Oh, let me think. What year was it? I think I want to say it was. Was it? It was either the end of. Wait a minute. I'm thinking now. <laughs> I'm trying to line up the dates. Right. There was. We had a really bad winter at the end of 2014. Um, it, it, it was. It, you know, we're not talking New Hampshire winter. It, it, it's like British winter, so it's just non-stop rain and wind. Um. And then in 2015, we had a spring and summer that was basically the same, just nonstop rain and wind. And then again, all through winter 2016. So we basically had 18 months where it was just it was impossible to um, kind of plan anything because all of the or 99 percent of the shoots that I did with people were all out on location because I I love being in the studio with animals but I hate being in the studio with people. I I just find it so boring and uninspiring. And and Mm -hmm. I I have the greatest of respect for studio photographers who can still get inspired and make it work, but it's not me. Um, But yeah, it it just basically became impossible to book anything. So for for like 18 months, I I got very little work just purely because of the weather. Um, Mm. 
And then one day I saw um, a post on Facebook from DIY Photography, and and it said that they're looking for writers. Um, you know, shoot shoot us a message. And they they guest feature. Like I got a couple of guest posts on there in the past. So I messaged Udi, who owns the site, and I'm like, I wish I could write good like what you do. Uh, <laughs> and then we chatted for a couple of hours, and he's like, if you want the job, it's yours. And that was in um, sort of March, April 2016, and, and I've been there since, and it's fantastic. Like, they're the best team I've ever worked with anywhere. So um, I'm a listener to DIY. Well, okay, let, we'll, we'll get to that in the next section, segment. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> follow my notes. Um, so, <laughs> so I, I am a viewer of of uh, or reader of diy photography done and i've got a lot of questions about that but like i said we're going to go do that in in the next segment in depth um so i mean you mentioned that you had done um sort of like a guest spot had you done any writing or journalism professionally or or was this just like you couldn't uh, help yourself but write a review of something or or how did how did you get started sort of writing less for, for DIY photography than .NET than just, you know, writing in general and writing about sort of technical things? Well, I, I'd never had any sort of formal writing training other than the usual high school stuff. Um, and I definitely had a lot to learn when I first started at DIY photography. Um, my writing styles definitely changed over the last four and a bit years. Um, but it, it's like the, like I said, the, the technical side of things has always come quite easy to me. Um, I mean, because I got I got my first computer when I was five, and I've practically lived on one ever since. So, so, so technical stuffs always felt kind of like second nature. Um, and because most of the people that, or like most of the clients that I've had for photography and before all that, I did web development because my clients don't speak tech they speak english i had to learn how to translate it in a way that that, that made sense to them um so i i kind of pulled on a lot of that um with the writing for for the technical stuff um but it's um but yeah it, it wasn't something that i'd been trained for and and my posts when I started at DIY Photography, if you look, they're a lot longer than most of them are now because I used to be quite long-winded. I still can be <laughs> if um, if I'm not reined in. But uh, but yeah, the, the my my points have got well, my posts have gone a little bit more concise now. Um, but yeah, it's it's definitely been an evolution. Yeah, it and sounds it sounds useful to me too, though. I think. Uh, it's like teaching. If you're forced to, yeah. to communicate with somebody else, you you can go deeper in yeah. understanding something. Well, that that was something else because when I was shooting full time, I I also ran four or five workshops a year. Um, I did I did one that was a, an introduction to Flash for people who who basically either who'd never used Flash before and were curious, or maybe they bought a speedlight and never taken it out of the bag. Um, and then the other one was a location lighting nude workshop. So we, you know, we disappear off into the wilderness with a couple of models, makeup artist, bunch of lights, and and we we we. I, I one of the things I try to do on my workshops is I I don't want to create mini me's, which a lot of people apparently seem to do on their workshops. 
Um, mm-hmm. I I don't want anybody to shoot like me because I mean it, I couldn't even tell you how I shoot like me. I try to explain the principles of photography and light to them in ways that they can understand so that they can shoot like themselves only better. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that that's kind of my goal with the workshop. So we we'd go off into the woods, we'd take a model or two, a makeup artist, bunch of lights, um, and we we'd we'd look at the natural light, the available light, their their composition, where they're going to stand, where the subject's going to be, what light we might might want to add, and why. Um, and and when you start to teach, having not done it before, if you know a subject quite well, it really makes you realize how much you do that you just go on autopilot for without even thinking about it, which was a big kind of wake up call to me. It's like, holy crap, I, I maybe I do know this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so you see you see the connection between teaching and writing as, oh, as yeah. a very strong one. Yeah. I, I don't I think like I could have I, I don't think I would have gotten this job at the OIP if I hadn't done the teaching. Mm-hmm. Right. Actually. Now that you mention I never thought about it before, but now that you mention it, yeah, I I, I I probably wouldn't be doing this if I hadn't taught some workshops. Yeah. Yeah, I I, I uh, I'm a blacksmith and I, I taught forging years ago mm. after having been a professional for some time and it was like relearning the craft. It yeah. When I taught it, and it was extremely useful. Uh, yeah. yeah. I recently had to uh, look up some YouTube videos on <clears throat> hand drafting techniques because I told Graham and Simon that I would uh, teach them the basics of technical drawing with a pencil. Oh wow! And uh, it, was, it was really, um, it was nice to have to relearn, like uh, how you make an ellipse with a compass. Uh, mm-hmm. haven't had to do that in 20 years <laughs> but it's pretty fun <laughs> I uh, like I like using string and pegs yeah that's Graham's method I, but uh, I, I like using Fusion 360 yeah <laughs> that's all. yeah you just draw a circle and then you look at it from the side yeah um, we're gonna have to get into Fusion 360 and I, I guess that kind of leads me to my next line of questioning which you know, we'll get back to the writing, but but John, you're also like a tinkerer, which has not really come up in this conversation so far. No. But you know, I I can just read your writing about, um, you know, I think I, I read an article about like the light camera, which I want to talk to you about. But, mm. you know, like you can just read an article you write about sort of like a tech review almost. But right. know that that you are a guy who, you know, deeply uh, is involved in in sort of how things work. So I assume you are a maker of things. Uh, I know uh, that you are, you know, a 3D printer and and sort of uh, designer of, of some things. But let, let's start at the beginning. Uh, were you, I mean, you said you were a kid who had a computer at five. I, I assume we're probably similarly aged and, and had something like uh, 386. Or no, it, it, was, it was before all that. I mean, I did have that, but the, the first computer I got was uh, an Amstrad CPC 464, uh, which, which was about, I think it was about, about the same time as the Commodore VIC-20. Yeah, that's before uh, my <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I think my first was a programmable Olive, Olivetti calculator that was much larger than an electric typewriter. 
oh, had its wow. own special cart. So we're looking at 1974 now. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's, that's about a decade <laughs> before me. <laughs> it, it, so, it, it led me to abandon computers for the next 20 years. <laughs> oh, wow. See, and I fell in love with them right away. I thought they were brilliant. So um, when I, I was born in 84 and we lived aw. in the Bronx old house and uh my dad at the time had a mainframe in his office which was right next to my room which was not you know it was like a ten thousand dollar machine in 1984 he was a programmer but uh probably like a you know the equivalent of a bajillion dollars and it was not like there were no games you know and i was just born and i remember it like humming away but i don't i didn't interact with it until like the 286 and commander keen and dos and like kind of I would guess somewhere around, you know, 90, uh, 89 or 90, I sort of became wildly fascinated by this. Yeah, yeah I got, I got my, uh, my uncle gave me his old 286 in 92, I think it was. Mm-hmm. And, and that was sort of my first introduction to PCs. And, and then in 94, he got me brand spanking new top of the line 486 DX250. Oh, yeah. The 486 was amazing. Oh, was I, had a, I, had a, I had a CD-ROM drive before my high school. Wow. <laughs> right, so, so when so, CD-ROM drives had the cassettes, you had to put them in and make like giant floppy disks out of them. Yeah. So at that same time, somebody gave me a Mac Classic that he made himself at home, um, oh, wow. and yeah. that got me started. So we're we're on the same time schedule. Yeah. <laughs> and then awesome. also, I got to say that transformed our business. So my wife and I were selling public art that we made and wow. trying to do all that by hand, trying to do all your own secretarial work and make the product was impossible until the computer came along. Yeah. It was like it was like having a free a free employee or more, more or less free employee to do a lot of work. So it really changed our lives. I remember the days like before PC shopper, like when you could buy computer parts where I remember going to the bank in the Bronx with my dad and he's wearing short shorts and knee socks. And he just gets like a few thousand dollars in cash, rolls it up, sticks it in his sock. And then we walk, (laughs) to some guy's house we go into his basement i remember it was like two brothers um and they had a giant dog and my dad does like a drug deal for computer ram for a 386 (laughs) oh i i done almost the same thing like with a friend of mine he had a when i I had my 486 a friend of mine had a 386 and it had four mega ram and i had eight yeah i had eight mega in my 486 Mm. um but he decided, like, he couldn't get a whole new PC. He had the fastest processor his board would let him have. The only upgrade he could do, basically, was more RAM. And um, he found someone who was willing to trade his four 1-meg sims for four 4-meg di- uh, sims, plus something ridiculous, like the equivalent of, like, $400 at the time, to go from 4 to 16 meg of RAM um and, and it was pretty much a similar deal we we hopped in a taxi we went to some guy's house we went in there's like half pcs all over the hallway and 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 like components in every room and and then we he pulls out these four four meg sims and we give him the four one megs and the cash and then we get a cab and we leave it was like it was it's it's very very weird days not like now where you just go to amazon and click and you get it the next day yeah, my 
friend who was making his own Mac classics got a, eventually got a letter from Apple saying politely that you should please stop doing that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Apple still sends out those letters. <laughs> yeah. um, so, John, like uh, you are clearly a computer guy, right? Oh, but yeah. uh, I also assume that you're pretty mechanically inclined. Yeah, yeah, uh, that, that's you know, my even that's just, like lighting. Yeah, but I, I bet we have a lot of things in common. What uh, what were like some of your earliest mechanical projects? Were you like a model rocket builder? Uh, did you build furniture? How'd you get into that sort of thing? Most of it. So when I was a kid, like this is another side story. So my dad has flown. We're all hunting. about side stories. All right. That's what we do in this podcast. <laughs> my, my dad has flown and hunted with birds of prey since he was 11. So I basically grew up around goshawks and peregrines and all the rest of it. When during the flying season, when they're not in the Avery molting or whatever, during the flying season, they stay in what's called a muse, which is basically a fancy insulated shed. Um, but it, my dad wanted his sort of custom for his bird so he could have the scales to weigh the bird and all his paraphernalia all handy for when he wanted to go out and fly the birds so we basically built it from scratch um i i was probably maybe 10 10 or 11 something around that age um and and it was that was basically my start in in sort of building stuff was 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 building up the muse and the Avery's and stuff with my dad um where i started to learn about sort of structures and and sort of engineering <laughs> um i'm seeing a pattern here and i can sum it up as hawks snakes and storms yes <laughs> <laughs> yes um but yeah so it, it it started off with like building the avery and the muse and and that kind of thing and and then during my time in florida there was an iguana for a while so i built a couple of great big outdoor enclosures for those because the, the female was fine but the male was an evil little bastard and, and we didn't want him in the house <laughs> um so yeah so it, it, it it's mostly been sort of outdoor buildings that, that was sort of like my initial introduction to building stuff and making things um and 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 taking apart every toy i could as a kid uh, yeah, and seeing yeah and seeing how it works which which was fantastic for me because my parents owned a whole bunch of toy shops when i was a kid <laughs> nice uh, yeah the, so i didn't yeah, think it was sorry go I ahead think, i think we all have that similar things i i grew up building things uh but i know we all three of us and probably graham young who's lurking in the background somewhere uh took things apart mm. uh, everything we could possibly find that needed could be disassembled yes yeah mm. and it didn't matter if we could put it back together again <laughs> no, no. no it's, it was dissecting essentially yeah i once uh in Queens, when I was living with my grandparents, must have been uh, 92, found like an old uh, video camera, which just came apart in my grandpa's basement. Uh, it never went back together, never had designs going back together. But for a while, I must have been like seven or eight. I just carried around like a CCD chip in my pocket. <laughs> wow. See, and I, I think that, that kind of thing is great for a kid because even if you don't know what it is, you don't know how it works, you can't get it working. It, it, it kind of, it, it, it 
sort of starts building a passion, if that makes yeah. sense. It, it's, yeah, it's, I've had this conversation a lot recently with friends who have kids who are like starting to come online as like humans, you know. Yeah. Um, I uh, I recently so one of my best friends from the Bronx uh, has a seven year old, and we were we have like a weekly Skype call, and mm-hmm. um, she showed me a uh, she had made the Screechinator 2000, which she had like disassembled some piece of electronics in their house. And the seven-year-old kid made like a buzzing device. And so I sent her an Arduino kit and right. uh, spent like a couple hours teaching her how to, you know, control an LED and then a buzzer. And then my buddy Eric told me that I was the 21st century version of a man who buys another man's kid uh, drum set. <laughs> <laughs> that's the but like, I mean, that's, that's something you yeah. got to encourage. Yeah, it's yeah. a traditional role of an uncle. Um yeah. I don't have kids, but I'm I'm an uncle many many times over. So same, same, <laughs> right? Yeah, and I yeah. do the same thing. Like like my I built my nephew's PC. He's got the Raspberry Pi. I set up for my sister now, and he called me a month ago. Like John, what camera should I buy? <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Uh, maybe we could talk about Raspberry Pi cameras later. We we've been on this kick for a little bit, Graham and I. Um, right, John, right. But uh, what, have you built any photographic stuff? I, I know you're kind of into video, and you sent me some very impressive pics yeah, uh, a couple I've, of weeks back. I've I've done a few bits. Um, I I I I'm still finalizing the design, but I've designed them, printed a teleprompter um, for use here at home because I I because I make videos for DIYP, I make videos for my own YouTube channel, and I got sick of messing up my lines and having to memorize a script and <laughs> so i i just wanted to be able to hit play and read and 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 it cut my shooting time down for a 10 minute video from like an hour to 15 minutes which means it also cut my editing time down to about a third of what it was as well because i don't have to sift through as many takes to figure out which was the good one that's uh, the important part yeah right <laughs> um the painful one now, if yes. you can if you can make a, a wearable one for everyday use, that would yeah, that would be brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> um, but re- recently, I I built a new um, so the Nikon 300 mm f4 AFS. I don't know if that's the current model. I think they brought out a newer one. But th- this one I got like 15 years ago, and it came with the worst possible um, foot on the tripod collar that you could imagine, like the, the slightest little breeze, and it would bend and wobble. Um, and I recently, I, I, it's not a lens that I use often. I got it like 15 years ago for one particular job that was going to last a couple of weeks. And, and the client said, do you need this lens? And I said, yes. And they bought it for me and, and I've just kind of kept it. Um, but I, I use it maybe once or twice a year ever since then. But I recently switched to Panasonic for my video stuff and I want to do some stuff with a really, really long lens with a two point whatever crop it is with these mm-hmm. Lumixes shooting video. Um, but uh, the original tripod color that came with the lens I'd lost years ago anyway. So I decided I'm just going to design and print my own tripod color. So now I've got one that's better than the Nikon design. I can make it in about two hours um, and it works beautifully. Um, a yeah. So months back, I actually made a tripod color for a friend of mine who's a wide field astrophotographer. Uh, right. And I, I made it, 
for free just thinking that it would be a good product but so far nobody has bought one <laughs> but it was a fun fun thing to do well the, the main reason i got into 3d printing in the first place wasn't necessarily to make things um i mean i mean it was but not the way you'd think with a 3d printer it was i didn't get a printer just to print stuff i got a printer because i wanted to learn more about motion control with cameras um and a lot of the principles with 3d printers the way the arms and each things moves yeah the hardware the software the mechanical principles the electronics it's all very very similar to what you'd find in a camera slider or a robot arm that can hold a camera so that that was my initial um sort of thought for getting into 3d printing was to learn how the printer itself works um and i bought the cheapest well the first one i got was a robot arm actually um i i'd done some work with this company dubot a couple of years ago um and they, they gave me a robot arm which it it's they're really expensive too but it's it's basically just a fancy toy at this point because they they sell them to schools for to teach young kids about robotics and things um and they gave me one and and it, and it has a 3d printing head on it but it's very very basic but it taught me a lot about how the arms move and the electronics behind it and that kind of thing and that then when i decided i wanted to get a proper 3d printer i got the cheapest kit i could find on ebay which was like 97 pounds so at the time that is, that is exactly what i did yeah um you've probably got the same crappy little i3 clone kit that i got <laughs> exactly <laughs> yeah yeah you know I, I bought it not to 3d print but to strap a laser on it to etch circuit boards right <laughs> um after i have to send you a link because the the, the head or the 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 x carriage that the head mounts to i designed another one that i can attach a diode laser module to <laughs> uh, have <laughs> so you used it to make circuit boards well, no, I, I just wanted to play with a laser. So I got like a, a, a five watt diode laser on AliExpress. Um, uh-huh. and, I, and I've not done much with it yet, but I, I've got it. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I, I got the cheapest printer that I could find because I thought the best way to learn about all the potential problems a, a, a printer or a motion control system can have is to buy the cheapest, crappiest one available because I will experience them all trying to get it to print well and um and it turned out that i was absolutely right (laughs) and uh, pretty much any problem that could surface surfaced and i had to get very good very quickly at fault finding in order to get it doing anything decent at all um so it taught me a lot a lot a lot of people will ask me like you know i'm interested in getting into 3d printing what should i buy and you know these days i've been telling them ender 3 because you can just sort of yeah yeah get it off the shelf but i used to tell people and if somebody doesn't have something that they want to print immediately i tell them to buy like a 90 dollar i3 clone because they're going to learn about 3d printing they're going to learn about how to build them and fix them and then they'll sell it for 45 dollars on craigslist and Mm -hmm. buy a printer that they actually want to make something yeah i I actually ended up getting another one of these i3 clones for 20 pounds uh last year um i have like the board blew in this the board blew yeah. in this one, and I and I posted in in one of the UK 3D printing groups, and the guy's like, "Well, I've got the same printer, and I've had it for like two months, and I can't get a decent print out of it at all." So he's like, "It's yours if you want it for twenty quid." Cause, awesome. Yeah, because because I've been helping him try to get a decent print out of it. The sad thing, like, because he sent it to me, and then he bought an Ender three, and um, you know the. the 
sad for him, but good for me. Within, I don't know, eight hours of receiving the package from him, I'd got it up, running, printing better than he'd done like the whole two months right. he had. <laughs> so, so all of my i3 clones, I have torn everything off of them yeah. and built uh, aluminum frames and, and modded them. And it takes me about eight hours to get them, you know, just one, just, you know, it's not even like an intellectual pursuit at this time. It's just yeah. eight hours of screwing little screws and nuts. Um, but I started buying um, Enders or other realities because <clears throat> actually I think the printers that I built are slightly nicer, but yeah. in one hour I can have an Ender printing and save you know, a thousand dollars worth of my time. Yeah, absolutely, uh, absolutely. <laughs> just, well, it's, it's like when, when people ask me now, what printer should I get? Like my first question before anything else is, why do you want a printer? Like, do you yes. just want to do you just want to plug it in and print, or do you want to learn how they work? And if they yes. just want to plug it in and print, I'm like, get a Snapmaker. If you want to learn, get the cheap eBay i3 clone. Yes, that is that is almost exactly my advice. Except I've been telling people to buy the Ender or a mm. CR10. Um, are are they mechanical or are they electrical? Yeah, <laughs> it's kind of yeah. the equivalent. That's great. Yeah. But yeah, the uh, more I've, the more I've sort of learned the technical side of how printers work, the more I've actually started using it to actually print useful things like the teleprompter, the lens mount. Um, you know, I, I got I got. This is a great thing about 3D printing is that you can buy most of the filaments in just about any color you can imagine. So I found like battery covers for my Nikon. So I printed out red ones and green ones. So my fully charged batteries get green ones. And I have a bunch of red ones in my bag. So when I pull a dead cam dead battery out of a camera, a red cap goes on. Then if I, you know, at, throughout the day, if I need to swap batteries again, I can open my bag and immediately see which ones are dead, which ones are charged. And, and I don't have to try three different batteries before i find one that works <laughs> i don't know if you know um simon forster of the classic lenses podcast um, no he's he's a friend of mine he buys and sells lenses professionally he's right. a smart guy he uh i think he bought a 3d printer kind of because of the bronco pan and yeah. we've you know we've been hanging out and talking quite a bit around 3d printing and he has like a burgeoning little business where he's been designing and selling lens caps for lenses that you know, you just can't buy an off-the-shelf cap yeah. for. And, um, you know, he was like, I'm not going to design a Nikon or a Canon lens cap because you could just buy one cheaper injection molded. And I said, Simon, but you can't buy a glow-in-the-dark one. Get yeah. yourself some glow-in-the-dark filament yep. and start printing. And, and now he sells <laughs> those well, in glow-in-the-dark. Yeah, I mean, I, that's, that's something else I've been doing as well. I've Because most of my shoots are sort of out in the middle of nowhere in the wilderness. Black body caps and lens caps i lose mm -hmm. all the time so i've start and and green's no good either because it's the wilderness yeah so so yeah so i've been printing my own lens caps for the nikons in like red and blue and and, and if i drop one i can see it on the ground i yeah you know immediately yeah. so yeah so there's there's i mean even if there's stuff you can buy there are there are advantages to making it yourself hey john um do you want to talk a little bit about the teleprompter or is that sort of an under wraps project until you finish it? It's not under wraps, um, but it's just not final. So I haven't released the files yet, but it, essentially it, it works with the, the, the adapter ring for the, oh, the Hyder M10 filter system. So they're, they're um, f uh, four inch square filters. 
Mm-hmm. So it, it's basically just the adapter ring and then the teleprompter just slots onto the end of that. Um, and, and then my my phone is the uh, is the screen that reflects off a piece of glass back at me awesome. in front of the camera. And I, and I got a, a little Bluetooth remote. It's like it's like a cheap little two dollar Bluetooth remote from eBay uh-huh. um, to start and stop it from six feet or whatever away from the camera. Um, but so, yeah, once once I've once I've sort of refined and and tweaked a few more things, I'm I'm going to put the files up somewhere and do a video and probably a oh, post cool. on DRIP. Yeah, I think a lot of uh, you know the the YouTube listeners, the YouTube crowd are, are going to dig that. Yeah, <laughs> it, it's something I want to do more with. Is is I I I like the idea of I. All right, I'm go back. I'm going to start that sentence again. <laughs> so that some of the stuff that I've been showing off, I get a lot of people saying, hey, are you going to sell these? And it's like, I could, but I don't really want to mm-hmm. because it, it's a lot of hassle. So I'm, I'm, I, a lot of the stuff that I make, I'm planning to sort of put up on Thingiverse if it works or my mini factory. Um, but I, I, I want to do more of them because I just got the, um, you know, Nessie, the filter company? They uh, make they made a, um, a macro focusing rail, uh, and I just received one a couple of days ago. I want to motorize it. <laughs> yeah, I want to motorize it and stick an Arduino in there and hook it up to my camera so I can just say start, you know, for racking focus. So I can just say start here, end here, push a button. This is and exactly just, what I've been working on. So yeah, long, and but, it and it'll just move, take rail. a photo, move, take a photo, move, take a photo, and and just yep. from the push of a button. That's that's so that's my goal for the macro focusing route. I don't know when that's going to be, but that's that's sort of my next little mini project to work on. I, I spent a month building a motorized version of something with an Arduino that's uh, going to come out next month. But so, John, does your teleprompter use a standard piece of glass, or are you using some sort of beam splitter or helical mirror? No, I'd I'd like to use a special piece of glass, but it's it. While I'm still developing it, I I haven't bothered just because glass can be quite delicate, and I'm often quite clumsy, especially while I'm developing stuff. Um, so right right now it it's um the glass I'm using was actually for a um large format camera that I was going to build uh, standard cameras standard mm-hmm. camera I can't remember if it's standardcamera.com or standardcameras.com but one of them is a 3D printed 4x5 large format camera and I was building one of those and I needed to get some glass to make my ground glass focusing screen um and i found a place online that was really really cheap but you had to buy 10 of them so <laughs> yeah so so i ordered 10 pieces of glass and and right now i'm just using one of those because it, it worked out to be just the right size for uh-huh. my OnePlus 7 pro screen to reflect off um so right now that that's what it uses it's, it's basically the same size as a i mean i suppose it's a sort of standard size <laughs> yeah uh, but yeah, so it's basically a, a, a piece of glass off a four by five. Cool. Um, I, I, I plan to make a bigger one in the future, definitely. I just need to find the right screen at the right price. So I have it's, bought. It's not ground glass, glass at this point, is it? No, it's not been great. No, because <laughs> no, this was one of the cool things about standard cameras, because like you're literally building everything, like you're actually grinding the glass yourself, which I just thought oh, was cool. fascinating. Yeah. 
Um, so, so you've got the STL files and there's a couple of bits where you can either print them in PLA just to keep it slightly rigid or you can CNC it in metal and, and there's all these other little bits it's like grinding your own glass and, and certain things you have to buy. But it's uh, yeah, it, it's as much as possible you're making yourself, which is, is fascinating. But uh, the, the largest piece doesn't quite stick to the bed on my printers. So I'm waiting till I build a bigger printer. <laughs> <laughs> you got to get that Aquanet hairspray from the U.S. Yeah. <laughs> um, hey, are you printing on glass, John? Uh, I am for PLA. For okay. PETG, I'm printing on FR4 board, yeah. which is basically copper-clad board without the copper. Um, right. and, and it's amazing for PETG. Like, it just sticks so well. And then as soon as it's cold, it just pops right off. It's brilliant. No glue, no spray, no tape, no mess, nothing. I just ordered uh, 30 custom boards from JLC PCB, uh, oh, right. which will be here next Monday. And they were so cheap that uh, I started thinking over the weekend, I, I only ordered them on Thursday, but uh, of making mechanical things out of PCB boards that had no copper traces or copper traces just for you know design instead of actually using them as circuit boards. Um, oh, wow. Maybe maybe I should print some uh, you know PCB bed covers, or even I was thinking of uh, PCB beds with uh, thin enough traces that they could be used as uh, you know thermal resistors oh, <laughs> and heat the damn thing up. But I, I think that's probably a disaster waiting to happen. That <laughs> I for, you know, well, when, ten dollar part from Express. When I first heard about the FR four board idea um i actually tried a piece of copper clad board because i used to make my own pcbs um with the toner transfer method you know you, you print it out that really crappy glossy photo paper you see in like dollar tree and stuff yeah that, that nobody actually uses for anything important it's fantastic for making pcbs because you you print on that with your laser printer you put it on your board you iron it on and the transfer or the toner just transfers straight across dip it in your ferric chloride and then just wipe off the toner with acetone and it's interesting yeah it's, it's a really good method or it used to be a really good method for prototyping your own boards before companies like jlc pcb came along <laughs> interesting yeah. yeah so you know i still um so i have been using Oshpark here in the states now we're on a circuit board tangent people are maybe not going to like but <laughs> it's, it's been on my mind i've been using Oshpark here in the states and i, I really dig them uh, but, you know, they make every – Oshpark is not a manufacturer. You send them your boards. They penalize the boards, you know, to make like a 14 oh, by right. 14 square or whatever. They send it out to the fab in Oregon or Washington, and then, you know, it comes back to them. They break the boards apart. They ship it to you. It takes like 14 days, and it's relatively inexpensive. Um, this last prototype, I was looking at like 130 bucks worth of boards uh, before uh, – before shipping and it was going to take 14 days and i thought you know maybe i'll save some money and try jlc pcb they've been advertising to me on facebook and yeah. um the entire order and i got twice as many boards in the prototype was 40 dollars, and it shows up in five days from china and like i mean it, it makes the production level cost even without the discount one tenth of what Oshpark would charge yeah. and so i've been thinking about like you know, I, I need a part for this uh, project that I'm working on that sort of like slides in length, like a slide rule. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I had come up with like laser cut and 3D printed versions of this. And I just thought like, 
maybe I can use um, like battery spring contacts to enclose one board right in front of the other and they could just slide and make, make the board into the housing. Yeah. Um, it's really, you know, and also like it took me two days to hand solder the current prototype that's on my desk. Uh, <laughs> had I just waited five days, I could have, you know, it's like cheap enough that I might not hand solder anything again in my life. I might just draft it and I, I be actually done with don't it. mind hand soldering. I find it quite relaxing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like it's like it. you just got a stack of components and iron in one hand, you solder in the other, and just stick some good music on, and away you go. Yeah. yeah. So, actually, JLCPCB, to be fair, won't do any mechanical components. And yeah, so, it's just surface uh, mount, right? Yeah. And, like, most of what this board is is connectors to other components with, ah. like, you know, there's three RJ45 jacks and buttons oh, wow. and knobs. Like, you know, like, uh, I could have paid them triple to surface mount the four resistors and one capacitor that I needed, but like I'd, I'd still need to sit there and solder all the headers. And so um, I really want to find a a pick and place service that'll do mechanical components, but um, so far have not. <laughs> so far, I got to hire a kid. I think you know you might have to print your own pick and place machine. It has occurred to me. <laughs> I saw who was it? Was it a bit? Have you seen Bit Looney's lab? Yeah, yeah. He, he just did a couple of videos on his pick and place machine, which were quite interesting. Yeah, I I really like that. But I think that was also, you know, through hole has has a bunch of issues. One is that you need a different pick head to yeah. grab a component, and I think he did have a head changer. Um, yeah. But I have to design like one head to grab an RJ45 jack yeah. and like. Yeah. Like a, like a rotary encoder is an annoying thing to grab. You've just um, got me wondering now if this robot arm that's doing nothing, if I can turn that into a pick and place machine. <laughs> I have a friend of a friend who works at an engineering firm in Boston, and she was working on <clears throat> integrating a G code compiler to run um, a 3D printer pause the printer, and then uh, engage a six-axis robot arm to place uh, electromechanical components into the print and then oh, continue. Wow. Printing. I think that's that's coming. It's something you know I'm not going to work on because there's yeah. smarter people and yeah. bigger teams than me. I mean, but... it, it, it's way above what I can do, but in the grand scheme of things, it's not that complicated a process when you look at some of the crazy like six-axis CNC machines that are out there. Right, and, and I could see like you know, having even just a dual head with like some sort of like copper sprayer yeah. or or a conductive filament, um, yeah. printing the traces in three dimensions into a part, mm. and then using an arm or even just a manual pause to pop a jack in or pop yeah. a button in. It, it's really interesting to see how even though three D printing still hasn't really become what they projected a few years ago. It's interesting to see the different directions people are taking it and trying to advance it in, in different ways now. Now that it's it's sort of become familiar to a lot of people, it's like, right, what else? What what can we add to it that makes it really cool? Yeah. It's fascinating. Yeah. I mean, and there's like everything. So I have a friend in Brazil who wants to work on a uh, metal powder jet laser uh, that would oh, wow. basically like a six-axis robotic arm with... Uh, like a water jet cutter, but using air and some, you know, powder medium and then a laser to use. And so, like, there's, there's, you know, like people working on on sort of the material science and, and yeah. 
aspects of this. And then there's people doing really amazing work of just sort of like the robotics of it and how you put different things into a print. And like all of that is so fascinating to me. Yeah, it is. Me too. Okay, let's let's get back to cameras, though, before everybody <laughs> signs off. Uh, <laughs> uh, John, do you have uh, projects in the future that you are interested in making that are camera-related? Uh, well, well, I'm using cameras to document them. They're not necessarily camera-related. Um, but I, there's, um, there's an Edwardian baths in Glasgow. Uh, that's that's been derelict or mostly derelict for about the last 20 years um they've kept a couple of rooms safe for people to use as like a community center but mostly it's it's just been left to its own devices for 20 years they got a big government grant last year and they were supposed to start restoration in april Um, Mm -hmm. obviously that's not happened um Mm -hmm. but it's now being delayed They're, they're hoping to start in october and it'll go on for about 18 months. So I'm 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 going to be documenting like the empri- entire process of, of the building being renovated with with time lapse of, of different things being rebuilt and lots of before and after and in the middle photos and interviews with some of the people who are sort of organizing this whole thing and and uh, and it, it's. It's good for them because it helps them get more awareness because they run pretty much solely on donations for this mm-hmm. building. Um, it also helps me improve my workflow. Um, it helps get me some content as well. Um, mm-hmm. And it also lets me, because I get, with working for DIYP and sometimes for my YouTube channel, companies send me products to play with and review and check out. So it, one of the problems you have as a reviewer of a product is is you often find yourself having to engineer a situation to show off the product or to test yeah. the product and see where its limits are. They don't always represent what that product will go through in the real world. So so for me, this 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 sort of 18-month project documenting this restoration was a way for me to be able to put all these toys through real-world testing on a real-world project. I'm uh, sure in a more interesting way to use yeah. it, just like shooting test. Uh, well, exactly, because, it. yeah, because when you're just shooting at home, like, everything is test conditions, so nothing goes wrong. <laughs> yeah. And, and it's when things go wrong that you really find out how good your gear is. Um yeah, so so that's that's um, so that so that's that's something I, I I really cannot wait to start just because I I like the challenge of photography and video. That's what keeps me going. It's the challenge. Um, when it just becomes sort of the same thing day after day, it it just gets boring and tedious and starts to feel like work. So, John, um, we talked a little bit about DIYphotography.net and sort of how you came to it. Um, but you want to just quickly kind of tell our listeners what types of things it, it covers and, and sort of, you know, what's interesting to me is what makes it unique over um, some of the, you know, quote, bigger sites like, right. like Petapixel. Um, I think you guys cover a lot of, like, new and interesting and, and smaller things. But... Um, yeah, t- tell us a little bit about the site. So, so I mean, a lot of what we do is like 
the usual stuff. It's the new gear announcements, um, you know, updates and, and, you know, for Adobe and other software and, and that kind of thing. Um, we cover inspirational photographers and filmmakers and the work that they produce um, as, as we come across it or it gets submitted to us. Um, we also, obviously, with the name, do DIY projects. Some of them are our own, uh, but we cover a lot of other people's projects that we see. Um, and, and especially right now with the lockdown and everyone's stuck at home, people seem to be getting very, very creative on the DIY front. <laughs> um but yeah, so some of them we do ourselves. Um, like we, we, we've got a bunch of videos and articles up that we've created, and there's a bunch I want to do with the 3D printing and electronic stuff. That's just, just finding the time to do them. Um, and we do a lot of tutorials as well on on technique and different things. Um, but, and reviews, obviously, because we, we we like playing with new toys. <laughs> um, so I mean, you you tend to cover things like. I became aware of you, I think, uh, years ago when I put out the first camera dactyl, just like I had a mm. news alert going. I was like, yeah. oh, what is this site? <laughs> Why are they covering somebody who has sold yeah. 35 cameras? Uh, but like that that sort of aspect less covering me and I know what I'm up to. But yeah, um, I mean, it, it's fast. Like to me personally, it's fascinating. But it, like just seeing what things people are doing that that's new or a little different to what everyone else is doing or, or, or a unique individual's take on something that is being done. Um, like like perfect example in the commercial world is is the the Insta 361R action camera. It, like uh -huh. like action cameras have been around forever now, you know. And and it's basically it's a GoPro or it's it's one of the cheap knockoffs that isn't very good. Um, and then maybe occasionally you'll get one from Nikon or Sony or whatever. But they're all largely the same type of thing. And then Insta 360 comes along and it's like, hey, here's a modular camera. We're doing something completely new and different. That's the kind of thing I look for in in like projects like camera dactyl and standard cameras. And, and I, I try to find things that I think are a little bit different to what we've covered before or what people are used to before. Um, and, and I love featuring those products like that because it's I mean, one, I think they deserve support and recognition for what they're doing. But it's, it's also it's inspirational to me watching them as someone who's also interested in making their own things. And because and, because photography and video to a large degree is problem solving. And that's what all these things are, all these little DIY projects. It's people having a problem and then solving it physically and and then presenting it to the world and saying, here, that maybe this can solve your problem. And I, I just think that's fascinating. I think, I mean, that is exactly why I love reading your website. Uh, it is inspiring to me mm. as well. Um, hey, I wonder your take. So I recently read an article you wrote about the sort of like the end of the light camera. I have a quick oh, question yeah. about how you go about. Sorry, you go ahead, Graham. Graham, you there? Oh, uh, I was just going to say, yeah. Um, can you hear me? Yep. Okay, just wanted to make sure. Um, yeah, so how do you go about finding these? Are you uh, are you trolling? Are you getting tips? Or it, It's uh, a mixture of both. Um, I yeah. When I go to bed, I cannot sleep in silence. So I usually have YouTube just up on the TV 
because I, I can just listen to the videos and I, I hate this is why I hate the videos of like build videos with just music <laughs> I want to hear what's going on because I want to lay down and close my eyes but I, I, I leave you two playing and, and it just tends to find a lot of sort of CNC 3D printer photography and combination videos um, so a lot of the things that I, I, I cover I find trying to get to sleep <laughs> but we also get people submitting stuff to us through the site i get a lot of emails directly and so does dunya our other main writer on the site uh we get a lot of people just emailing us directly and saying hey i sure. I've, I've made this cool thing or i think it's cool what do you think um so we get that quite a lot um and sometimes it's it's just you know I'm, I'm in a lot of facebook groups for a lot of different photography and video topics so sometimes it's like somebody just posts something in there and it's just an idea they've had and then i'll keep an eye on it and like in in one of the 3d printing groups um a guy made um fully motorized pan tilt head which i just thought was absolutely brilliant so i, I featured that a few months ago um and then the yeah. the, the a couple uh, last week actually i featured a guy had converted an rc car with with a little bit of 3d printing into a cable cam for the insta 360 and i just found his video in in one of the random insta 360 groups and i'm like this is amazing um and i had to write about it and then he messaged me and he's like hey thanks for featuring it and then insta 360 emailed me and they're like hey we saw your post about the cable cam yeah, <laughs> and, yeah and, and and that's another thing sometimes we get the companies themselves saying hey this guy's done a really cool thing with our product that we we think you'll like um so so we you know it, it comes from everywhere really um if i just had to rely on going out and finding things it would be a lot harder um sure you know, so it, it when people come to us and say, look, I've made this really cool thing. You know, if you think it's cool, too, we, can you show it off? I love that. When, so. So, yeah, if you're listening to this and you have a cool photography or video thing that you've made and you want to show people it, like, shoot me a message or an email or whatever. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so I well. Uh, which one should I talk about first? I got like 10 things that, that made me think of is, I guess the first one is, uh, do you, do you follow this guy, um, strange parts? It's, uh, yes, Scotty I Allen. Do. did you I see do. the Insta 360 teardown last week? I, I, I am actually writing a post on that today. <laughs> oh, awesome. Yeah. I, I made it halfway through before my girlfriend made me shut it off, but it's the first thing in my queue. Yeah. Uh, for later today uh, to yeah because i've i've had the camera for about three months or so now and and it, i mean it, it's it's got a really nice weight to it like you feel like you're holding a, a solid piece of kit but when, I, it, I, when he the, pulled it everything out i'm like holy crap i didn't realize it was that it's much just stuff. board on board on board yeah it, yeah yeah it and, was and it, very and so, yeah and i'm glad he took his apart because it means i won't have to there's yeah. <laughs> a lot of glue he had to eat up yeah but i was amazed like i i never really designed you know like my current project has six boards but yeah. there's only two stacked boards on it yeah uh, but like the density i i detest zip connectors uh um, yeah. from like fixing my iphones and things but yeah um you know the the density that they get and just like you know if i have two boards stacked they're almost always on pin headers and they're a quarter of an inch apart yeah, but like yeah. these things are just like ziffed together if not yeah. glued 
and and just um, it's is really inspiring to look at that and like mm. you know know how it works, but also yeah. be amazed at the assembly and the mechanical design around circuit boards. Yes, yeah. And then you're trying to figure out how you can make the most of your two dollar boards at JLC PCB. Yes, <laughs> I, I tried cheating, and I have one module that requires three boards, but two of right. them are very small. So I just, um, you know, I made edge cuts so that you could break, snap the two daughter boards off, and then they sent me an email back a day later that was like, uh, "Hey." There's no connections between three boards. Oh, no. We're going to charge you three times. So they charged me an extra $8. I said, oh, you know, I I always wondered if you could get away with that. (laughs) So, I mean, what I could do is like uh, have one single trace. So what I'm always worried about is like the the uh, end mill that that cuts the boards apart, um, shorting like a ground and and a power layer. And so like I don't. Connect, you know, I like I, I I let my ground plane sit inside of the board a little bit, and there's nothing in the fiberglass layer on the outside. But you know, I think had I run one trace from a bullshit yeah. pin, uh, I would have saved the ground plane to cover the whole thing. Well, yeah, but then I would have had to mill through, or even worse, like oh, snap, yeah. snap yeah. through the ground cut with my cutters, which I know I'm gonna, you mm. know. <laughs> yes. Anyway. Um, the other thing I, I really want to talk to you about is I recently read an article that you wrote about uh, the sort of end of that company light that made that crazy yeah. looking with uh, all of the different, like what 16 lenses. It looks like yeah. a cell phone. Yeah. Um, I, d- I don't know if the company itself is actually dead or what they're doing. They, all we know really is that they're not working with smartphone manufacturers anymore. So I'm, I'm kind of curious what they are doing. Yeah. So, um, I actually, in 2003 or four, I wrote the Wikipedia article on Ren Eng, who designed the Lytro camera, which oh, right. was the uh, planoptic camera. Uh, yeah. I, I was I was like pretty fascinated by it. I think he used an old, uh, you know, Contact 645 and some uh, maybe a Phase One back with a wow. array of lenses on it. It was just sort of like a prototype to come out of the Stanford. Uh, Digital imaging lab, um, and I've been following Lytro ever since. And mm. Light is uh, kind of, you know, uh, I don't think there's any of the same people, to my knowledge, uh, or no. the same technology, but it's doing similar things. And then, what's interesting to me about it is sort of uh, scientific and engineering applications of being able to do ray tracing and and mm. you know point mapping. Um, it never seemed to me like any of those would be a reasonable uh, like consumer camera. Like I don't, yeah. I don't want Elytra to take pictures of people. I do want Elytra to see, you know, whether I could replace my tape measure with it or <laughs> you know, whether I could gauge the volume of a cylinder uh, or, right. you know, like, like I think there's a lot of scientific and engineering applications of these things, um, particularly like when they get into smartphones for, yeah. I mean, I, mean, I, get, I think on the creative side of things, I think Lytro made the smart move by going to Hollywood. I, I, I although I don't even know if they're still doing that or they. I haven't heard from them in a while. Um, yeah. But when they when they they showed off like their their Hollywood stuff with the, that insane camera with like a whole cart full of storage it needs, <laughs> it's the like the the demos they showed off were just wow, like like chroma keying somebody from any background. 
yeah. because the camera just knows the depth of every single hair. It was just wow. Yeah. Um. So so I mean, like that alone is just gonna. Even though, like, obviously the camera itself and all the associated kit is really expensive. The amount of time it's gonna save on on workflow and setup and everything else for the shot itself is just it'll pay for itself in no time. Right. Like if you're Lucas Films and you're paying. Yeah. 20 people a hundred grand a year to yeah. chroma key things like yep. it might pay for that camera yeah but then again you know like i wonder i wonder like like the adoption is i i feel like it's it's a better nasa technology at this point mm. like it's it's going to take so many millions or or a billion dollars before that becomes a useful consumer or even professional product yeah um yeah. But like I, I just I feel like it's it's really interesting like sort of um, optics engineering. I, I've been curious about you know taking an old sensor and getting like a fly eye injection molded and seeing if I could write right. some ray tracing stuff. But you know that'll eat a year, and I, I don't have yeah. that type of cash to just no. sit and do nothing for a year. Yeah, I've I've been wanting to build a three D scanning rig as well. Mm-hmm. Um, with with like 50 DSLRs, but I don't have the budget, and nobody's offered me 50 DSLRs. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> hey, John, have you been following the new Pi camera? I have, I have. I'm really, really kind of curious about that because I've I've got like the original five megapixel one and whatever it is. I don't really use it much. I I just did a couple of tests and it's like, oh that's cool. And then stick it in a box never to be yeah. <laughs> tried again. I mean those things are meant to be hooked up to like Octoprint. Yeah. Which I also well, read your article well, on. That, that's what I was just gonna say. It's like the only time I really use a Pi these days is for Octoprint. Mm-hmm. Um and I've got like nine Nikon DSLRs. So usually I will just hook one of those up via USB to the Pi. And then that will take the shots for the time lapse, um, because then I've got like 12, 16, 24, 36 megapixel raw files instead of the tiny little uh, Pi camera. <laughs> yeah, I have uh, I have four of those uh, five megapixel Pi cameras hooked right. up to a uh, digital Ninslow that I never finished the <laughs> software for. <laughs> Yep. Yeah. There's, I, I think all of us have got a lot of unfinished projects that we'll get to one day. Yeah, or I won't. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. That. You know what? Someone should make that website. Like, just an archive of abandoned projects. Ooh, I like yeah. that idea. I think. Yeah. I think. I mean, our our listeners, I'm sure, could. I, th- I actually I think that would be kind of like um, GitHub. Or what was that other one that used to be? SourceForge or whatever, but just sure. for abandoned projects sure. where people can just come along and be like, oh, that's cool. That's a nice idea. I'll I'll, I'll go take that somewhere. But yeah. like separate from GitHub and whatever. Sure, it, sure. Like solely for non-working yeah, projects. Yeah, solely for abandoned projects. I think that would be an awesome website. So I'm the chairman of the board of Albuquerque's uh, member-run Makerspace. Oh, right. Uh, which just, just means that I you know, organize meetings sometimes and disorganize <laughs> them others. But um, one of the things we have going on is like a tag system in the space. So like if you have to store a project that's like, let's say you built a table and it's, you know, drying because mm-hmm. you've glued it, you can put a green tag on it and says, hey, please don't move this. You know, I know it's taking right. up space, but I'll be back in X amount of days to pick it up. Right. Um, 
and we've got tags for broken equipment, yada, yada. But the purple tags are really interesting where if you have a project you've given up on or would like help on or want to like offer as another project to another person, you can put this purple tag on your project with a brief explainer and then somebody can just pick it up and run with it, which is, you know, it's, it is the physical incarnation of your website of, of broken dreams. Well, there you go. Right. There's your domain name. If, if right, register it before you put this live purpletag.com <laughs> <laughs> I, I preferred uh, prototypes of broken dreams but uh, oh that's <laughs> good as well uh, funny uh, one, one more thing I don't need to manage John <laughs> would you think you would ever do an article on uh, like the failed prototypes of, of uh, someone or some company yeah, I, 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 it's interesting to me seeing what other people have started, and and I, I think, I think the world would 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 have so many more cool things if a lot of those abandoned projects sort of were known, and someone else could be inspired by them, and and either either start it over again in their own way, or just take off where the old one left off, and and. Yeah, so I, I think it's 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 interesting to see where people take things next. So one um, one thing that I have noticed that's interesting is that like a larger company will often patent something before mm. they give up on it. Yeah. Right. So like bringing something to market it <laughs> happens way later than or before they even patent. start on it. Right. And <laughs> and I've been reading a lot of Google patents, and there's you know you can look at old Hasselblads that were never made but patented. Yeah. Um, my favorite patent is like, I want to say it's like 1992 or 1994, but it, it was sometime in the 90s. Sony patented a sort of uh, like bulbous pelical mirror that goes over the front of your camera lens so that you can see yourself when you are taking a self-portrait. It, ah. it is like an early patent. I mean, it's a patent on a mirror. Wow. They should not yeah. have been kidding given a patent but like i don't think it ever came about in one of their cameras because it was so stupid but they basically patented like the analog selfie reverse camera you know what though i just saw a thing yesterday uh a chinese company i can't remember the name now they've developed something like that for vloggers who don't have a flippy out lcd but they have one that that tilts uh-huh. and it mounts in the hot shoe and it's basically oh, a mirror that. Yeah. So that when you're in front of the camera, you look at the mirror and it bounces down at your LCD that's that's lying sort of horizontal. <laughs> yeah. So with all these things that you see every day, what is it uh, that you see coming down the pike? Something that you, you know, you did, did an article on or, or maybe didn't do an article on where you say, this is it. This is like the next cool thing to come along. Or maybe it's the next revolutionary thing to come along. What's uh, What's been really exciting that you found recently? It's the screen mirror for sure. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It's really, really tough because there are it's weird it's like there are so many things that are kind of staying the same 
like with uh-huh. camera manufacturers. It's like particularly you look at some of the low end stuff, and in Nikon's case, the high end stuff. That like each new one that comes out, it's just a very tiny iteration of the last. Right. Like, there, there aren't many, you know. And then and but then now with mirrorless coming along, I I I think that the, I hope. The, the biggest sort of change in the next couple of years is what Nikon and Canon are going to do with mirrorless to sort of, because it, it, their second generation is basically uh-huh. going to say, we get it, we're here or goodbye. See you later. <laughs> it, right. It's literally that. I don't think they can just keep plodding. Either of them can just keep plodding along because right. you've got, you've got um, Sony who are Sony and you've got Panasonic now who are, who are like, like I think Panasonic and Nikon and Sigma, I don't think Canon do yet. But like like Nike, like Sigma can record raw video natively, the Nike and externally to the Atmos Ninja Five. The Panasonic and the Nikon can do it externally to the Ninja Five. I I, I think if Nikon and Canon can listen to the feedback and and make us all go wow with the second generation, regardless of what we shoot. I, I, I think that's going to be the biggest thing is is one or both of them saying we're back, baby. Um, hmm. Other than that, I, I think the biggest things happening, love it or hate it, is with smartphone photography. Um, mm-hmm. it, it's, it's one of those love-hate things for me. I mean, I love the technology behind it, especially the computational side of it, because it is like it's like ingenious the solutions they come up with for some of these things and and what's what i find really cool now is that a lot of the techniques we used to use a lot in early digital or dslr days um like like, automated yeah it's all automated and hardware accelerated now like 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 all of these hdr shots that phones can take now it's basically the same as us 15 so, years ago, taking a bunch of images, bringing them into Photoshop and stacking them and masking them out. And, and it does it all intelligently and automatically and hardware accelerated in like 0.2 seconds now, which so I, I actually want to ask you about the smallest things happening in uh, photography and film photography. But before we get to that, you, you bring up like a real interest of mine is, I don't know, are you familiar with like uh, the Magic Lantern SDKs? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So like, you know, for the listeners that don't know, like Graham, for example, on his webcam is using a Magic Lantern rewritten firmware for his uh, Canon camera, just, you know, as a webcam. And uh, basically they, uh, okay, so um, all of the firmware, the the program that runs these cameras, to my Mm -hmm. knowledge, has always been closed source. But um, a lot of the older Canon image processors, somebody had decompiled, which uh, the the compiler is is um, I don't know what do you say like a non-preserving process like you you lose information and so you can't always decompile a full right. program um, just kind of like uh, if you go from uh, a function to a derivative you lose something and you can't necessarily yeah. go back without adding a constant just yeah. as an analogy right yeah. and so um, a lot of the earlier Canon cameras are really interesting because Magic Lantern somehow was able to decompile uh, the actual software and, and give you, like, you know, C code. Um, but, you know, as they have gotten more complicated, I remember in 2009, I bought a Canon 5D Mark II, and there were a lot of things that I knew it physically could do, but um, I did not, you know, unless I was going to rewrite the entire firmware from scratch, which I can't, <laughs> uh, I didn't have the access to make it shoot like let's say 
two frames in a row without a physical curtain and yeah. HDR them, right? For for a dumb example. Yeah. Um, but I knew it, it was physically possible. And now, like, companies are catching up. And you're, you're sort of mentioning of, uh, you know, computational processing uh, or, or computational photography uh, and how they're catching up really sparked this in me is like, you know, I often won't release the program that goes in something that I sell, right? Because the hardware right. anybody could make as, you know, that my next project, right? The hardware takes a couple of weeks. The software, you know, is 3,000 lines of, of I think, yeah. medium clever code. But who in their right mind would build a fab to build all of the components of a Canon 5D Mark Seven or whatever they're up to now and build this thing and like knock, you, you can't knock them off, right? Like it's, the supply chain is oh, too yeah. fast. And by the yeah. time you figure out how to do it, there'll be three, four versions off. And this yeah. is if you have millions of dollars. And so what I'm thinking is like, why? Like it makes no sense to me to keep the firmware, uh, particularly like the image processing firmware, closed source from Canon and Nikon. And I think, you know, the second one of them makes uh, the firmware on any one of these cameras, like they're all great cameras now. Like yeah. all cameras have been great for the last 10 years. Um, but like the second they make that firmware open, every physics lab in the country or the world will just buy that camera. Like yeah. every engineering firm will buy that camera. Like I don't know why it's kept closed source. I, well, I, I can partially see it because I mean, they're, they're protecting their own algorithms, which which makes sense when you consider that for years, Nikon have been using Sony sensors and getting better performance out of them than Sony uh -huh. has. <laughs> so it's not um, keeping me, it's keeping yeah, Sony. Away yeah, from. it's it's mostly, I think, protection from competitors. Mm -hmm. um, but what would be really nice is if there were at least some kind of little space and an API that we could access. Right, but like, okay, okay, so maybe Nikon wouldn't do it if they have something more clever, but like, uh, Sony is in the business of selling sensors, right? Yeah. Like, Sony has has the chip fab that people need to go to. They can set the price. Nobody's going to come, like, why would Sony not make their cameras open source? At, at the very least, somebody could come up with a logical menu. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, there is that. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I mean, it would be really, really nice if I mean, there, there have been a few people who've tried to set up open source camera projects, but I don't think they've gotten anywhere. Um, yeah. What what I'm actually kind of interested in is, uh, sorry, <coughs> Young Nuo, you know, who make the, the little cheap yeah, speed lights of course. Right. And, clo and clone Canon lenses. Yeah, they, yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm looking you, at one right now. Have, <laughs> have you been looking at their little camera? No, I didn't know they yeah. made a camera. So, like, oh, God, it's like a year or two ago, they announced a Android-powered camera with, get this, a micro four-thirds sensor and a Canon EF lens mount. Oh, wow. Yeah. Anyway, they, like, fast forward, like, a year or so, they've actually joined the, the micro four-thirds standards group. Um, with Panasonic and the company formerly known as Olympus. <laughs> um, I... <laughs> and and oh, who else was it? I think uh, Lauer. Was it Lauer that joined it as well? Um, and yeah, and a couple of other companies. So like Young Nuo are like part of the Micro Four Thirds group now. So they've, they're re-releasing re this camera with an actual Micro Four Thirds mount, but it's actually powered by Android. Oh, 
which means that you have full access at least to the processor, if not the image processor. Yeah. So, so I mean, even even if they lock it down completely, I'm sure some enterprising coder out there is gonna figure out a way to jailbreak it and stick Linux mm-hmm. or an unrestricted version of Android or something on there that that will let us play. Yeah, um, I've never written. That would be my hope. I, I, I think I think that could be a good move for Young Nuo actually with that camera. Is just yeah. release the camera and let people in, you know, just play with it. So that like I mean, like just his... just by running Android, right? They've opened yeah. it up to Android programmers. Exactly. I have exactly. Written a few iPhone programs, but all yeah. of them stink. Well, that's um, it. If, I mean, I, I'm really Linux. hoping it's not fully locked down and we can make our make and install our own stuff for it. Yeah, it's it's got a well. Okay, maybe they. Maybe they have only one program with a key. Talk to the talk to the image processor, but yeah. why would they do that? Oh, yeah. I get you. Now my next year is uh, <laughs> my, you can buy them for two hundred and twenty-two dollars and seventy-two cents. Uh, I might just buy one today uh, <laughs> and see if I can get it to run Linux. I mean, then then it opens up to like OpenCV and all of the Python libraries. Yeah. Um, that's been really interesting. I've, I've, I don't know if you've played with OpenCV at all. Um, Not for a long time. It's, uh, you know, like instead of having to do the linear algebra for anything, they pretty much anything you could think of, you just call one function in Python. Right. Does it. Um, I was I was striping and interlacing a bunch of uh, 3D uh, images for like projection under a lenticular lens a while ago right. with OpenCV. But I mean, I think, I mean, if it's if it's running Android, chances are it has an accelerometer, which means mm-hmm. like the the mapping ability of this thing is gotta be unlockable. Okay, yeah. okay, let's that's not what people want to hear about, but I'm <laughs> I'm excited about it. John, yeah. maybe I can talk about this camera some more. Oh yeah, absolutely. I I have friends in China who are like, we we will let you know as soon as we see it. We'll we'll get it because I don't know if it's being released everywhere. Apparently, the original one with the EF mount was only released in China, but only in very small quantities. Mm-hmm. So I've got friends over in China who are like, we're looking, we're keeping an eye out. As soon as we see it, we'll get one and send it to you. <laughs> No. So, but yeah, it's it's that is a potentially very promising camera from from even if they don't open source it, like just from a sort of independent hacker. Yeah, I mean they don't need to, right? If it's running an operating system, and yeah. You can communicate. The the thing was like, so I wrote a bunch of programs to talk to Raspberry Pi program or Pi cameras, mm. um, but I didn't write them at the base level, like to interact with the module. I wrote them to interact with. Um, there's a couple like uh, I think Raspi still is one program, and then right. uh, there's a bunch of them, and a lot of them did not like I could not call an initialization of the camera before I called the take a picture, and so right. my solution was to just run them in video and only capture one frame when I wanted. Yeah. Just you know the the whole camera ate. Uh, I think five volts at two amps constantly over wow. the time it was on. It was uh, that project died because of battery management. Uh, <laughs> it worked perfectly on my desk. <laughs> wow! So, th- so the, it was the batteries that died. <laughs> well, 
Yeah, I mean, it, it was actually like a buck converter issue. I, I had a lot of uh, 1850 lithium ions, like right. they were in a Tesla or Bird scooter. Um, but I just wound up having to get like bigger and bigger buck converters that could uh, pass enough current to oh, keep wow. the thing on, right? And so my solution, really, I should have just had a dual stage button where when you would like focus on a normal camera by pushing half push, then yeah. it would initialize and then draw two amps instead of like, you know, 100 milliamps or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but but if I just initialized and took a picture, basically like the way that uh, Raspberry still worked was it would take a couple of frames, make an exposure reading, and then take a picture. And so you had to go through like six CMOS cycles before. And, and it's just like who we haven't had shutter delays since uh, 2006. <laughs> yeah. I'm not going back there. Yeah. Oh, I just got real nerdy. Sorry. Um <laughs> Where is where Graham? Where are we? Uh, okay, so oh. I, I've I've another uh, question. Um, what have you seen uh, in your tenure that has come along and you said, "Oh, that's a piece of crap. That's never going to fly," and then has been a huge hit? What have you missed? Uh, because those are those to me are so much more interesting. Um, in my own life where I, I'll look at something and I'll go, no, never, you know, that's a flop and, you know, it becomes, uh, the next big thing. I, I've never thought anything was particularly bad that made it, but that, that I have had a few surprises that, um, uh, Peak Direct tripod, I, I, that just went wow massive huge i i mean i thought it's a nice looking tripod it's interesting it's a new design it'll probably be quite popular and then boom the like millions and on their kickstarter or indiegogo or wherever they had it but it, yeah. it just that just blew up and that that that's really really surprised me i never expected that to get as big as it did um but other than that, i mean that's the only one that sort of really yeah. comes to mind um okay i got another question uh okay. so graham had asked you about like the biggest and in industry changing things but like that's not really what we're about on this podcast <laughs> what i want to know about is like what is the the smallest like most niche little little thing like from a company uh maybe that's got 10 employees like so there was, is, is there, was, there was a company i contacted a couple of years ago because they i like i i over the past few years, I've gotten really big into sort of non-standard cameras like 360 and 3D cameras and that kind of thing. I found this company called um, WeView. It's just this little Chinese company that, that isn't very big. Um, they made this camera called the WeView Sid, which um, it's, it's a little 3D camera and it's not a great camera at all. It's really not a good camera. But it is so much fun to use. It's like this tiny little camera with two lenses and like tiny little like smartphones circa seven or eight years ago sensors in it. Um, I think the 2880 by 1440, two 1440 images side by side, mm-hmm. um, which is fine because if you're looking back at these images on a smartphone with like a VR headset, most of them are that resolution maximum anyway so 
the resolution is not a problem. But yeah, the, the like the really bad lenses because they got chromatic aberration and they're not very soft. But it's just so much fun to use. It reminded me a lot of using those disposable cameras when I was younger, because it's like you, you hold it up, you hope you've got a shot, but you 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 don't know until you look at it like the next day or, or develop it, whatever. And this is kind of like that. It, it's like it's a, it's a really cool little fun camera that I just go out and I, you shoot with it, not really caring whether you get the shot or not. But when you do, you're really happy with it. If that makes sense, it's, it's like, yeah. Absolutely. It's a, so, yeah, I mean, I, it's 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 not an amazing camera, but it's not a, it's not a very expensive camera either. I mean, even a couple of years ago i think they're only like 200 bucks and i think you can pick them up for a little less than that now um but it's a lot of fun it's it is yeah so that that was like a, a really underrated product that i thought deserved to be more popular than it was um and i did post a review of it to diyp with a couple of examples and stuff and yeah so yeah i still use that but i i think uh i'm i'm it bums me out that more people don't learn about these cool little things like that So, John, I know you from uh, DIYphotography.net. I think I've seen your uh, YouTube channel years ago and did not put two and two together, which is on <laughs> me, but I just subscribed this morning. Um, what types of things do you do on YouTube? Uh, I, I try to keep things as sort of photo and video related as possible, but it, 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 it covers a sort of a range of semi-related stuff as well like the electronics and the 3d printing um because i'm you know making stuff to go along with the photography and video to to, to help me create it better um or or it's behind the scenes on photo shoots vlogs when i go away to shoot with somebody um like my trip to arizona last year and camping in the scottish highlands over christmas um but it's been it started off just as sort of a way for me to um sort of keep using my gear when I switch from photography to writing and, 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 you know, stop it all sort of rotting away on a shelf. Uh, plus I've got companies sending me gear. So I want to get out and play with it to review it. Um, so it, it, it gives me, it gives me an excuse to keep getting out there and creating just for me, not just for DIYP um, and hopefully help other people learn a few things along the way as well. Hey, what's what's the last or or your favorite video that you made this last year? Oh, I'm just looking through my list now, actually. Well, there hasn't been much in the last six months because I haven't been able to. Go <laughs> <anywhere>. <laughs> um, I'll give you a year and a half, <laughs> or all time, whatever you want to talk about. Let's let's talk about uh, one of your favorites. I always want to talk about 3D printing, but, um, you know, maybe. Well, the, the trip to Glencoe, because at, at Christmas, I it, it's become something of a tradition with me and one of my friends now. We always seem to find ourselves alone on Christmas Day. Um, and, and a couple of years ago, he called me up on Christmas Eve and he's like, um, what are you doing tomorrow? <laughs> uh, so he drove up five hours to meet me. And then we drove up another couple of hours into the Lake District in England. Um to go spend Christmas Day in the Lake District and and 
that was the year before last and it rained the entire day and we ended up cooking christmas dinner on a camping stove in a cave um, that sounds great it was an absolute blast but like like he's there with his pentax 67 loaded up with uh, i don't even remember what it was now i think it was a black and white film of some kind um might have been trix um but you know i mean and i'm shooting digital mostly with my phone actually uh, but we did it again last year uh, he came up to scotland like six hour drive for him and then we drove another four or five hours up to glencoe and and camped out over christmas in the middle of the scottish highlands um just shooting photographs of the insanely foggy day that it turned out to be on christmas day um and uh the stars at night um so yeah so i like the they're not very popular the vlogs but i they're the ones that i like the most just because you know they're, they're good times with other people that i like going out and shooting and and um but yeah the, the the more popular ones tend to be lately actually are the 3d printing ones yeah, I was, the one that I I thought that you know I am most interested in. I've just queued it up actually. Is uh, you made some litho panes, which is very like mm. pretty printed in photography and yes. maker related. Yeah, uh, can you tell us a little bit about those? I think that's something that just about everybody is gonna go watch if they've made it this far. <laughs> yeah, the the litho panes are fun. They're they're they can be tricky to shoot because it, it obviously depends on how good your printer is. Um and and but it's essentially like the te- the idea of lithophanes has been around for a long, long time. Um, sure. I think they were making them a couple of hundred years ago with porcelain. Um, but essentially, it, it's like it's a 3D relief that you backlight. And the thicker the material is, the darker the light being projected through it is. The thinner it is, the brighter it is. So you're basically creating a, a black and white image based on the thickness of the material. Um, which means it's really, really great for photography if you've got a 3D printer, because all you need to do is just turn it black and white, get your contrast the way you want it. And and then there's a, there's there's various pieces of software and online websites where you can convert that into a 3D model to print. And yeah, it, it's, it's fascinating. And, and I've seen a few people who have actually been painting the back of them to produce color ones. So after they print oh, wow. it. Yeah, because you want to print it in white because you want your whites to be white. And if you print it in any other color, your whites aren't going to be white. Um, so they print these things in white and then they will paint the back of them so that the light coming through the front takes on that light's color, uh, which is which is quite interesting. Um, that's been interesting to watch. It's it's interesting to me that if you were to, like, look at a tone curve and make like a bar graph of any pixel, the mm. height of that bar graph, if or the inverse yeah. graph is directly proportional to like the the thickness of the 3d mm-hmm. printed material it must have been a really fun uh sort of translation algorithm to write well i i've used a website called uh i think it's 3dp.rocks mm-hmm. something like that it's, it was a while since i did it um but yeah it, it, it's uh now you've got me thinking about if I can write something to figure it out. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I have not printed yeah. that, but it, yeah. it seems. Yeah, I mean, because once you boil the image down to a black and white contrast, it's 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 like it's your numbers are zero to two fifty five. Right. So then all and you have to do is invert it 
yeah. then remap it to a scale <laughs> between zero and whatever your thickest thickness is. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then just do that for however many megapixels you're printing. Um, <laughs> but yeah, yeah it, it's it's a fun and interesting technique, and and the trickiest bit about it is just getting your printer dialed in to print them absolutely perfectly. Um, and that was one of the things I liked about the Snapmaker because I mean it's not an inexpensive printer for what it is. I mean it does also do CNC and laser, um, but it but you know for the small build volume on the original it's not an inexpensive printer, um, but it's built really really well and it's extremely accurate. So it was it was fun to have a go with these on that printer, um, and, and it's it's a topic that keeps popping up. Like every so often I'll I'll see people posting groups. Hey, I just tried printing a lithophane. Here it is, and um, yeah yeah they're they're a lot of fun. I want to print a big one. I I I. I've got all the parts together. Well, most of the parts together. I just need to order the extrusion for the frame. But I want to build a giant uh, Core XY printer. And oh, when I yeah. do, yeah. And when I do, I'm I want to build a uh, print a really really big lithophane just or something. Giant, I don't know how, how big? <laughs> how big are we talking? <sighs> well, the base is only going to be 300 by 300, but I want the height to be like 500. Oh, you know, so I have a 500 cubed. Uh, oh, the reality uh, reality yeah, yeah. CR10 and it's I mean the problem with it is is that it just takes forever I need to do yes. some experimentation with printing with like a 0.8 millimeter nozzle or even yeah. swap the extruder to you know three millimeter filament but yeah. you know I can make big things they just take forever which yeah. increases the chance of failure exponentially yeah and so if, it, if I knew a two-week print would work out cool but if I've got to try <laughs> six times and I burn forty dollars worth yeah. of film each time, it's yeah. it gets less use than I would think. Yeah, I I don't think I'll use the height all that often. Yeah. Um, but but like the the three hundred by three hundred build plate I want, but I I I don't want it to move backwards and forwards. I I just want it to go down as it prints. Mm-hmm. Um, because it, it, it's it's a lot easier to time lapse for a start. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or you yeah, just yeah. get a bigger motor. You mount the camera to the bed. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. That'll do. Tripod. Just, just, yeah. Stick an extra couple of pounds on the bed. Yeah. That that, that won't make your motor slip at all. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so now it's time for uh, shout-out, book recommendations, uh, how to find John, and all that other clerical fun stuff. Uh, Graham, do you have any recommendations or shout-outs for the week? Yeah, uh, I have a couple. Um, first of all, uh, I want to note the passing of Milton Glaser. Uh He uh, was a graphic designer, um, work that kind of predated me. Um, and I think is a little bit passe, but he was hugely influential, particularly in the 60s and 70s. You'll know his work. He did the I Heart New York, I Heart NY. Um, yeah. That is probably his most famous. The second most famous is uh, he did a um, uh, an illustration of Bob Dylan where his hair is multicolored. Um, uh, at one point they said that that 
poster was the most um, seen image in the Western world. Uh, I think it's been surpassed probably. Uh, but it went out with, uh, you know, millions of albums um, and apparently was, you know, it was inserted in the albums. And, you know, once again, his taste is not necessarily my taste, uh, but you don't get to my taste without going through his taste, if that um, makes sense. Hugely influential. Uh, I want to say once again, uh, you know, that uh, graphic design and design in general you know, it's the unattributed art uh, that we see the most and experience the most. And he's he was one of the names that we knew. And so uh, it's worth noting um, a couple of other things I stumbled upon. I'm uh, we talked about a couple of weeks ago uh, uh, about what our projects are. And I talked about a four by ten view camera that I'm working on. I purchased some film holders for that. And so I'm going to build the camera to the film holders. Um, so uh, as I was looking around, I was, you know, my next um, task is to figure out whether I can actually make decent bellows or not. And you can. A, yeah, well, uh, it's just, you know, you got to kind of figure it out. And I came across this build on a 11 by 14 view camera uh, by a high school photography teacher. Uh, his name's Scott Wittenberg. And the the uh, the link to the YouTube video will be in uh, the show notes. It's incredible. It really is. Um, you know, the stuff that he did um, with, you know, things. I, I think he talked about ordering one thing um and, you know, all the rest came from the local store uh, for this. So it's uh, it's pretty cool. Um, it's a pretty cool build. And, you know, it's not going to be the world's greatest 11 by 14 view camera, but it's, <laughs> you know, going to certainly be serviceable. And um, uh, and in that video, I came across something uh, that apparently I'm the only one in the world who didn't know about. And that is Packard shutters. And one of the things that we talk about is, you know, Shutters are kind of the linchpin of success uh, in DIY photography. And uh, sorry to steal that from you uh, uh, there, John, but, you know, <laughs> in uh, homemade camera. Uh, but, um, you know, that's our that's our big uh, uh, bugaboo. And these are old. Um, these are, uh, you know, uh, I don't know, 1850s technology that is uh, is pretty cool. And so there is a also in our show notes, there's a little YouTube video on how a Packard shutter works. And um, and so that's those are my shout outs and uh, and what I've been doing. Hey, uh, so, John. Oh, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. OK, no, OK, yeah. I'm going to go. go uh, hey, John, do you have uh, any shout outs or links that you want to share? And then after that. Um, where can people get a hold of you and, uh, how, how can they find your work on the World Wide web? Well, my, my links and how to get hold of me are pretty much the same. <laughs> it's DIYphotography.net, obviously is where I write. And, uh, there's, there's a little, um, submit a story button where you can send us tips on projects you're making or things you're involved with. Um, or you can email me directly at john at DIYphotography.net. 
if you want to see me on YouTube, it's just youtube.com slash John Aldred. Um, and you can get me through my email on there as well. Um, and that's pretty much it. Hey, John, are you on Instagram? I, know I am. I, I am, but I don't really do much with it. it it's actually, and an, you'll understand why when I explain it. My username on Instagram is at Kauthia, <laughs> spelled K-A-O-U-T-H-I-A, which is the Latin name for the monocle cobra, which was the first venomous snake I ever handled. okay and lastly we want to thank robbie cribs from soundtrap studios who made the music that we used all throughout this podcast thanks robbie There's a guy, he's American, I can't remember whereabouts he's from, uh, but there's an American who lives in London. God, I wish I could remember his name. He has based, it's like the guy in Florida who had the, the farm who died a few years ago. This guy's basically been injecting himself with small amounts of venom to build up an immunity. Yeah, it seems uh, like yeah, his time would be, I, I watched a Vice talk on that guy. His that's time the guy. His time would be better spent just not getting bit by snakes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. That's yeah. like the, uh, you know, it, you develop the possibility. I, I forget who it was. It was one of the magicians. I'm using that in quotations um, who uh, developed a resistance to eating glass. But his but he wore his teeth down. You know, Ooh. it's like mm, trade offs there. Mm, yeah. Not really not really within my 
uh, my value system, shall we say. <laughs> uh, so, John, one day when you make it to uh, Albuquerque, I'm going to take you to the uh, the Rattlesnake Museum. Oh, yes, please. There's rattlesnakes everywhere here. Well, hopefully, uh, hopefully NAB will be on again next year in Vegas. And uh, last, when I went to NAB last year, I ended up staying a couple of weeks in Arizona, which was a blast. So uh, next time NAB is on, I might, I might, I might come visit you in New Mexico. You, you have a standing invite. We'll Wicked. find some snakes. Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, there's a time like in the spring every year where like every time I go out, I see a rattlesnake somewhere. Brilliant. Like, I was really every- disappointed that I didn't see a single snake in Arizona. Yeah, I think it's so hot. They're usually yeah. like under rocks here. Yeah. You know, we're high desert. And so, Ooh. you know, you got in the middle of the day in the the springtime and like you might just see a five foot long rattlesnake like just basking yes yeah because because like like when i when i first started photographing them i wasn't very good like i said i was then it was like all the gear and no idea and i'm shooting on film so it i didn't know if i'd got the shot or not until a couple of days later so Uh it's not like i could always go back and do it again um but now i'm a bit better i i i I want to photograph him in the wild again (laughs) Cool. Yeah, they're they're around. The last snake I saw, I haven't been backpacking in a while, but I was in this canyon um, where Geronimo was from in the Gila wilderness. Oh, and wow. uh, my friend was actually like off puking uh, and his girlfriend and I were sitting on this log that he had been laying down on. And then this snake just like slithers over to us to check it out and goes into its hole right in the log that he had been in. <laughs> and, oh, and she was like, you know, looking at it and, you know, I'm maybe a little disoriented at this time from backpacking activities. And I said, Bobby, she's not from here. I said, Bobby, that's that's a pit viper. Back the fuck up. And we looked. It was a black tail rattlesnake that just like came, you know, smelling the air to check us out. I've oh, never had a snake approach me. Right. I've always stumbled across them. I, just... I had one approach me like when, when we were one day, like. Like I said, Jeremy had like 140 snakes and like the biggest, you know, he had like like 10 foot king cobras and, and Jesus. all these crazy things that didn't bother me one bit after I'd gotten used to them. But he yeah. had these two baby forest cobras. And these things are like a pencil. They're like 15 inches long and as thick That's as That's almost can. scarier, right? Like, yeah. These yeah. things had zero fear. Like he, he opened up the cage one day and one of them just shot straight to the front like like he wrapped his tail around the lip where the glass slides and he's striking out the cage that was trying to hold on with his tail and then he lost his grip landed on the floor and chased me out the snake room wow like, yeah like like the way the snake room was set up there was like a step up to the door to get out um so i i lit, i just leapt up there through the door the snake wasn't big enough to get up and over it um, mm-hmm. So I just, I just leapt up, shut the door, and my buddy got him back in his enclosure. And I'm like, that's like, like I will help you do anything, but you open those mm-hmm. guys' cage again, you're on your own. They were the only snakes that scared me. 